This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited today to welcome Matt Sauer, a founding partner of boutique law firm Willery & Co., which he founded with veteran advisor Jim Willery. Matt worked previously at King & Spalding, where he advised billionaire Darwin Dawson, who partnered with Carl Icahn on a blockbuster campaign at Xerox, which I'm hoping we'll chat a little bit about today. And so thanks for taking the time to join with us. Thanks for having me, Ron. Okay, so let's start a little bit about your boutique law firm, Willery & Co., which you and Jim uh, started up. So t- you know, tell me, usually uh, in the world of M&A and activism and uh, SPACs, lots of very big law firms work on that. You guys started this kind of a boutique uh, specialized law firm. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that and what kind of deals you work on. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So Warren Co. is a strategic legal advisory firm, and we really seek to partner with clients on transformational and catalytic events that often involve public and private M&A, corporate governance, shareholder activism, and then hostile and dispute-related matters. And our client set tends to be, as you mentioned with the Darwin example, family and founder influence business as well as strategics. But we've slowly been growing our private equity client set around those hostile and dispute related matters where you have a litigation, a governance or shareholder issue, maybe a solvency issue, and you need a quarterback kind of at the high level to really drive a deal or commercial outcome. And you know, to really put a little more meat on the bone regarding the firm, we are really doing what the business was back in the old day, where you had a consigliere type person, whether it was a lawyer, a banker, or a consultant that would spend time with the clients before a matter was mature or a transaction was ready to be executed, and not only help them take that and execute, but also help them develop the strategy around it and how to bring that to fruition. That's something that largely has disappeared and you're seeing more and more productization and siloization in the advisor space. And so we're aiming to fill that gap and we partner with all of those big players that that you're referencing, whether it be banks, consultancies, or large law firms. And we work with them on a daily basis on deals where we can execute together, just like when we were inside of those firms, frankly. And, you know, clients seem to to like this because they get coverage earlier and then they get, frankly, more senior attention when you're executing through a process. Okay. So so basically you guys come in kind of early and work with the client. And then uh once they're ready to execute a you know a major deal or something, then they would you would bring in the larger law firms, banks and things like that. Is that in a nutshell? That's- that that's right and and we'll work with them on that and and part of the reason we can do that and we're uniquely set up for that is because both Jim and I have experience across finance strategy and law that is unique I think in the advisor world and so we're able to draw on that to be helpful early in that process in a variety of ways yeah no it's interesting i uh, i know uh, uh, Jim Woolery from I guess one one of his hats was he was an activist investor, right, with Hudson Executive, which is a fascinating uh, activist fund since they they worked with a lot of CEOs to help, and it's still going on today. But anyways, it's interesting. He, yeah, you guys have a lot of different uh, perspectives that you bring to the table. Okay, so I wanted to talk about one of the most interesting proxy fights and active situations I've I've ever covered, 
which was that I know you and Jim worked with Darwin Deason, who's, I guess, a billionaire large investor of Xerox, who partnered with Carl Icahn. And they successfully shook up Xerox's board and C-suite in uh, 2018, 2019. And Xerox's CEO, Jeff Jacobson, agreed to resign. So tell me about the experience. What did you learn from activism from it and that you kind of can bring to the table today? Yeah, that was one of the more enjoyable experiences, albeit one of the more demanding experiences of my career. Yeah, I want to say it was pretty time consuming, (laughs) if I remember correctly. (laughs) Yeah, and the personalities involved were demanding as well. Darwin, who we came into that matter, as you mentioned, representing was a long term client of ours. He's probably not as well known, but his background, he was a operator of a company called ACS that got sold to Xerox in, I think it was 2009. And he had been investing and he was actually through that transaction, the second largest or third largest holder of Xerox at the time. He wasn't an activist. And frankly, he still isn't an activist by the traditional Wall Street definition. He's a long-term investor that really became disgruntled with the management team thought they were taking them in the wrong direction and weren't providing investors with all of the facts they needed to evaluate their actions. And as you may remember, Ron, this really wasn't the proxy fight activist type situation when it started. It no. was Xerox announced a merger with Fujifilm and we filed a lawsuit for breach of fiduciary duty to block that merger and around that merger. And then we subsequently launched that proxy fight with Carl that became what ultimately resulted in the board shakeup you mentioned and drove the settlement. But in my view, that lawsuit filed by Darwin, which we were able and King and Spalding team, Rich Marooney and those guys over at King and Spalding were able to really get a first of its kind injunction in state court over up here in New York to block that merger. Right. And that was what was the linchpin to really drive that that outcome. And, you know, you mentioned learnings from that. And I'll give you two quick ones that I always think about when I reflect on it and it applies to activism and well beyond. And the first one is deal making is all about the people. Substance, (laughs) facts and the law matter, but people matter way more. And Carl and Darwin throughout that whole process always brought it back to the people and what perspective were people bringing to the table and how could we play on that to drive an outcome? And then the second is you really have to be able to understand the entire picture in every lever that you have available to you. We orchestrated an investigation initially, a lawsuit, a proxy fight, a comms and media strategy And without any one of those elements, we would not have been able to drive the outcome we did. And as I mentioned before, of kind of what we do now at Woolery Co. and what's core to my practice is exactly that, being able to quarterback and manage those different levers and understanding them at a deep level. So how important was it to bring in kind of the big guns uh, with Carl Icahn? Because the more I think about it, the more I think that Carl Icahn loves to go in when there's deals that he considers to be bad and that shareholders don't like. And I was just thinking he had a recent successful target with Southwest Gas, for example, in a pipeline that they acquired. So, I mean, did he really, did he help out a lot in terms of galvanizing shareholder support or was, you know, the lawsuit the most important thing? Or 
talk about the different factors. I, I don't think I would weight any one of them more than the other. But to your point about Carl, I if he speaks, people listen and right. you're going to get attention. And he is a extremely intelligent investor and knows what he's doing when he raises his hand and says something doesn't seem right. And that was immensely helpful to us getting the outcome we did. Like I said before, the ultimate thing that I think brought us over the line was winning that court case in New York State Court. And because without that, that merger would have gone to a shareholder vote and they could have won that shareholder vote. When we got that injunction, they were dead to rights on the deal. It stopped the deal and the management team and board had hitched their wagon to that. So we were able to have them against the wall. And we had already been bringing the heat with the proxy fight to be able to kind of flip that and be able to drive that settlement that we ultimately got. Yeah, no, it was a fascinating story. I probably wrote maybe 15, 20 articles while it was going on and taking phone calls on Sundays and Saturdays as different things developed. So it was quite interesting. So I wanted to just switch gears a little bit and talk a little about some of the trends we're seeing in activism and M&A. And I just wanted to cite a statistic that I thought was interesting that Lazard puts out their quarterly reports on trends in activism, and that they found that activist insurgencies with an M&A objective jumped in the third quarter of 2022. So even though the number of campaigns overall globally dropped a bit, campaigns with an M&A theme, including efforts to scuttle or Sweden deals, breakup companies, or insurgencies focusing on pushing for a sale represented 48% of all campaigns in the third quarter of this year, up from 39% in the second quarter and 32% in the first quarter. So I thought this was quite interesting. These are campaigns globally. And you know, I thought it was interesting, particularly since the M&A environment is, is not as great as it was, yet you're still seeing lots of activist campaigns with an M&A theme. There was one we wrote about this morning, actually, where an activist wants to scuttle a deal that hasn't even been announced yet. That just there's speculation that a deal will be announced, which interestingly was a, that situation with Carl Icahn at Southwest Gas. He was already ready to tackle it before the deal was even announced in that case. But anyways, Matt, what do you think? I mean, do you think M&A will continue to be a key part of activist campaigns in the months and years to come, even if the overall M&A market slows? I do. I think two themes will see play a more prominent role in activism for a couple of years here. And this is me with my crystal ball a little bit, but is one capital structure changes and M&A. And I think that's my view, largely because of the environment with high rates and business headwinds. And on the capital structure side, just to hit that briefly for a second before I get into M&A, yep. is I think you when you have business headwinds, there's a smaller margin of error for use of leverage and how you manage your cost of capital as a CEO and a board. And one swing, albeit small, can mean multiples in terms of shareholder value upwards or downwards. And I think there are a lot of activists sharpening their pencils, looking at creative ways to use the capital stack and to rejigger the capital stack to help drive shareholder value. And I know there are management teams that are out there looking at that proactively and trying to get ahead of what they can do before they have an activist knocking on their door. So uh, when you say dig into the capital structure that activists are pushing for 
trying to reduce the debt of the businesses or do stock buybacks to help that happen? Or can you be more specific on that? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a combination of all of that. And really looking at the leverage of a company and maturities and what rates there are, and then and looking at the the cash on the balance sheet and trying to find ways to unlock value, whether that's extending maturities on debt, using that maybe to facilitate a buyback or do some kind of dividend recap. There's a bunch of different levers when you look at a capital stack that you can implement. And I think you're going to start seeing some of that, particularly where organic business growth is slowing and you're having a raising rate environment like we're in, I think you're going to start to see people put a lot of focus on what the debt looks like and what the equity stack looks like. Because you can have common preferred with different rights and return profiles. And I think that'll become more important and more prominent in activist situations here. No, that's very interesting. Okay. So go on in the M&A aspect. In the M&A, I do think we're going to see some more activity in the M&A front, particularly around activist situations. And there's a couple reasons I think that. And one of them is that, as I just mentioned, organic growth is challenging right now. And investors are really discounting you know, future growth prospects that management teams are talking about. You look at the technology sector where multiples have compressed, stocks are trading down, and you'll see a perfect example of that. Obviously, it's not just technology, but that seems to be emblematic and the one that people like to point to for that fact. And the fact of the matter is management teams will still need to find growth somewhere. And if the market is discounting organic growth, I think they're going to start looking into that market for M&A opportunities, particularly where their competitors or other companies that may be interesting add-ons are of the depressed value right now. And there's an opportunity to consolidate. You know, one area or at least one set of companies I think this could be interesting around is these previously DSPAC companies where you either have interesting technology or business line that could be hoovered up by a strategic. And they've, as you know, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners know, a lot of those companies are trading down just because they've been despacked in a lot of cases. Or you have these companies that have been despacked and they have a peer group that is also in a similar situation and they need to be the consolidator to attract the limited capital that's available in the market right now and the limited talent pool just to be the one that emerges in that space, whether it's electric vehicle technology or something similar. I think you're going to see a lot around that. The second reason I think there's going to be M&A or at least more M&A activity is because investors are really demanding a focus on the core business from management teams. There's not as much room for management teams to dedicate capital and resources to non-core things. This could mean we'll see spinoffs or carve-outs around those non-core assets. And I think management teams will look for opportunities to recycle that capital either back to shareholders or into more core activities. And then the last thing is there's a lot of dry powder still in this system. And that is both on strategics balance sheets as well as in private equity. And that capital, particularly the private equity capital, will need to be deployed somewhere. And 
when you have, again, assets trading at depressed values or what they might see as more attractive of values to entry in, you'll see that activity pick up. Obviously, the rate environment's a little bit of a headwind for the traditional LBO strategy, but I think you'll start to see private equity firms, and I know some are talking about this, where they'll fund deals up front with more equity using that dry powder they have, and then doing a recap down the road in a more favorable debt environment instead of doing the traditional LBO. There's been some of those in the market. I think KKR just did one of those in Europe. But I know there are a lot more considering that strategy as well to get around the current rate environment. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just at a conference at Columbia University where this exact, I was very surprised to hear that private equity is still very busy despite the rising interest rate environment. And a couple of people on one of the panels brought up this exact point that you made about how they could structure deals. And, you know, I'm still seeing like situations with private equity expressing interest in uh, striking deals. So it's quite interesting. I wanted to focus a little bit on uh, one of the points you made, which is this idea of activists, particularly in this kind of market environment, pushing for streamlining by divestitures. And I guess probably one of the most high profile campaigns with this kind of divestiture component going on right now involves Disney, where for our listeners who maybe haven't followed so closely, third point, Dan Loeb launched a campaign pushing Disney to divest, you know, that he wanted them to divest their ESPN unit and then accelerate the purchase of a 33% stake in Hulu it didn't own. And then Loeb later backtracked on his ESPN spin proposal, but then he settled to get an outside ex-Facebook executive on Disney's board. And then just when you thought the dust was settling, now Disney fires CEO Bob Chapek and then replace him with longtime former CEO Bob Iger. And then boom, Tryon's Nelson Peltz shows up with a campaign that appears to be focused on succession that, you know, wants to find someone to replace Iger with. And, you know, Peltz, of course, had one of the largest proxy contests ever at Procter & Gamble. So if there's anybody that could do a contest at Disney, it would be Nelson Peltz. But I don't know, does this situation fit into this category of streamlining and focus? I mean, the, the Hulu 33% stake, they want the, you know, Disney to buy that back faster than before than their current plan, which is uh, likely to not happen for like a year or two. But uh, I don't know. What do you think about this campaign? Do you think it's something that uh, Nelson Peltz might take more public right now? It's just kind of we're waiting to see what he does. It's definitely a fun one to watch. I'm not personally involved in it, obviously, but it's been an interesting one to see the comings and goings on it, as you said, since Dan Loeb got in there. I think that Tryon, at least at a high level, seems to be running a similar campaign that they do with a lot of success, as you mentioned, like Procter & Gamble, where they're trying to get a board seat, they're looking at the CEO spot and looking for a succession plan, and then they've mentioned cost and operational-related improvements. I do think they're going to face a little bit of an uphill battle here because Third Point has already come in with similar demands and with some success. And they got a director appointed. Mm -hmm. They got a new CEO. They announced a cost reduction plan and the market was all positive on that. I think for trying to be viewed as successful here, I think it's going to have to be a little more than succession planning. I mean, obviously, Iger's going to need a successor at some point. They're going to have to announce that, whether that's today or down the road. I think that M&A could be something that's at the heart of this campaign, because in my view, and 
look, I could be wrong here. I don't have any knowledge, but I think they're going to need something bigger for them to view it as worthwhile and impactful. I don't think it's just a campaign where you add a little more to the cost-cutting plan that's already been announced and call it a day. I think they're going to need, it could be this ESPN spinoff, it could be the Hulu acceleration of the buyback or other businesses that are within Disney that time and time again, people have looked at that business and the different assets and thought, there's a lot of quality here. There's a lot of fat for a buyer or a standalone CEO of that business to trim. And there could be opportunities for carve-outs, spin-offs, and the like. And frankly, I think even when they do that, there's probably going to be some more buying on the content and media side that seems to be where they're really trending in that business. And one of the interesting things in this situation that when I was looking at it over the weekend was that regardless of whether Tryon gets a board position, I think they at least have a familiar ear on the board with Amy Chang, who is a longtime P&G director, where, as you mentioned, Tryon ran a very active campaign. She's on the board of Disney as well. And I don't know anything about their relationship, but at least it's a familiar face. They were on the board together at the same time at Procter & Gamble? I believe so, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, (laughs) that's very interesting. Okay, we don't have a lot of time. I wanted to bring up one other topic taking an increasingly large part of my time. And that's this arise in what many are calling anti-ESG activism. And of course, the preeminent or largest example of that is Vivek Ramaswamy, conservative author of Woke Inc. and a prominent critic of ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance-focused investing. So his funds strive asset management, uh, revealed campaigns at three companies, one of which is at Chevron, And at Chevron, they wanted them to make capital investments in oil and gas to maximize long-term returns and not focus on carbon emission reduction targets. And this comes as there's kind of a backlash among conservatives pulling money out of BlackRock, which I calculate to be uh, with the billions of money being pulled out of BlackRock, it's still 0.03% of BlackRock's assets have left. So not not a big amount. But anyways, it's a backlash to the pro-ESG strategy that engine number one succeeded with at Exxon last year. So Matt, I guess I wanted to get your thoughts. I know you've been following this playing out in the activism sphere. Do you think that this anti-ESG activism has some legs? Can you envision one of them even launching a director contest? And also, do you think that some of these pro-ESG activists, you know, like following in the engine number one's footstep might try to nominate directors as well? <laughs> I, I, I'm honestly surprised it took this long for this strategy to develop. You look at the ESG space and it's largely a policy and and somewhat political mechanism in the corporate world. And when you look at the broader political landscape that's developed, even just here in the US, you see increasing polarization. Mm -hmm. And that really has not been reflected in the ESG space. I think with Strive and, as you mentioned, some others that'll follow, they're seeking to fill that void and bring it closer to what we're seeing in the political landscape. How powerful it ends up being, I think, is anyone's guess. But I think there will be some traction here to your questions regarding director contests and maybe what some proposals might look like. I do think we're going to see some action from this group. And I think that 
it'll be targeted at first. And for them to have a lot of success, they're going to need to pick the right industry, the right company and the right issue to capture some of the what the, I think they would view as low hanging fruit and be able to rack up some wins. And you'll start to see capital reallocate more and more to this strategy. As you said, it's not significant dollars in the grand scheme of things right now. But I think if they get some wins like engine number one did, they'll be able to move that capital into their coffers and redeploy it. And I do think they're going to be active. I think, look, they're going to get headlines. We're here talking about it. A lot of people are talking about it. And frankly, I think they're going to get a lot more organic headline coverage than even engine number one did, because it's something that's different that's not in the marketplace and it is so polarizing that people can't help but watch it. It's like a train wreck. I I don't mean the strategy is a train wreck, but it's just, it's something that will attract eyeballs. What they do from a conversion standpoint of dollars moving to them will all be dependent on how they can take those headlines and get wins with campaigns. And I think the proposals like be ones along the lines of the one you just mentioned, where they're trying to roll back these climate programs, selective censorship, the quote unquote woke policies that are being pushed into the marketplace and trying to focus on programs that they view is more focused on the bottom line success in terms of dollars and cents than some other measure. Yeah, no, it's interesting because first, I guess a few, a number of different responses to that. Firstly, kind of more conservative shareholder proposals over the last couple of years have also spiked, but yet they've had very poor support, you know, if that's any indication of how a a Strive or anti-ESG proxy contest would show, it it would suggest that they would have a miserable failure. You know, the three big index funds, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, you know, I wonder, would they support a, a, it would have to be a very nuanced campaign. It could not just be, you know, oil major, stop investing in the energy transition type stuff and focus on drilling and your traditional oil and gas business. I think it would have to be more nuanced than that. And also, uh, I understand, you know, with the universal proxy card, this is a new system that's in place. It's not very expensive to nominate directors, which I think could be something that the strives are thinking about. But I also wonder whether an oil major like a Chevron or Exxon, you know, would want to settle with Strive to put one of Strive's directors on their board because these are the exact kind of people that they want to be on their board because they want to focus on their traditional oil and gas. And that would show up as a win for Strive. And this way, they don't have to actually go through with the proxy contest. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just (laughs) speculating how this could play out. But also, one more point, the pro ESG guys, I've heard, are thinking about if the Strive nominates a candidate or the anti-ESG nominates a candidate, some of these kind of types of environmentally focused groups that have been doing shareholder proposals, they might also nominate a director that's a pro-ESG candidate at the same companies to counter the anti-ESG candidate. This is what I've been hearing. So anyways, I I could see that for sure. It is a little bit of a competition and I completely agree. I think the existing system makes it an uphill battle for a lot of these folks, unless it, as you said, is a nuanced approach. I think your point around being friendly to some of these oil majors or companies like that is an interesting point. You can see companies inviting one of these shareholders in to take a significant stake and to help kind of counterbalance some of the what they might deem anti-policy of whatever company it is and invite them in and become that counter voice in the shareholder base. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely going to be interesting. And particularly because it's now less expensive to do a director contest. That's not less expensive to win a director contest. It's less expensive to just you know nominate directors. So it's been fascinating. Uh, we are out of time. You've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral, and we've been speaking to Matt Sauer. Thank you, Matt, for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. It was, it was so much fun. 